It is well with my soul, one of the hymns we sung just a few moments ago. Uh, it reminded me uh, of a time uh, when I was going through a particularly dark period. And I thought that maybe God had abandoned me and many of the things I uh, wished for were not happening and not coming true. And it reminds me that perhaps this is the state of many of us for much of our lives. We, we walk through these periods where uh, things are not well. And we sing a song like, It is well with my soul. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that it probably isn't. And we have a lot of doubt and we have a lot of questions. And maybe sometimes when it's really bad, you want to chuck it all and just walk away and say, See you, Jesus. I'm out of here. Uh, maybe it comes to that point. Maybe in your life uh, you've known people, Christians who you've known a long time. And one day something happens and they fall away and you never see them again. And there's a certain sadness when that happens. And sometimes when they fall away, they have all these reasons that they give. And maybe their reasons start to affect you and you think, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. Maybe all this is some sort of myth. Maybe the, the apostles did make it up. Maybe, just maybe, I need to chuck it all and walk away. I have those moments. I have those moments. Not often, but one issue for me that has caused me more nights of, of lost sleep is the relationship between reason and Scripture. I've, I've laid awake at night thinking about that issue, and, and it has haunted me. And maybe your issue is, is different, but there are always temptations to fall away. There are always temptations to, to just say, I'm done with this and I'm leaving. And when we see Christians around us who tend, who seem to be falling away, who seem to be leaving Jesus behind, it starts to get discouraging. And we start to wonder why. And we start to ask questions. And I'm reminded of a song by Josh Garrel, who I've come to kind of like recently. His song, Farther Along. Maybe you've heard it. I'll read you the first, the first few lines. Farther along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brothers, live in the sunshine. We'll understand this all by and by. Tempted and tried, I wonder why. The good man died, the bad man thrives. And Jesus cries because he loves them both. We're all castaways in need of ropes, hanging on by the last threads of our hope. In a house of mirrors full of smoke, confusing illusions I've seen. Where did I go wrong? I sang along to every chorus of the song that the devil wrote like a piper at the gates, leading mice and men down to their fates. But some will courageously escape the seductive voice with a heart of faith while walking that line back home. So much more to life than we've been told. It's full of beauty that will unfold. And shine like you struck gold, my wayward son. That dead weight burden weighs a ton. Go into the river and let it run and wash away all the things you've done. Forgiveness. All right. There's more to the song, but we'll come back to it. It's a great song. And it reminds me of the doubts of myself, and my, my own confusions, and my own questions. And when we read these two passages tonight, I'm actually going to combine the, the epistle lesson and the gospel lesson. And, and because they go together, they're, they're saying something very similar. And tonight I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about what we contend for and why we contend for it. What we contend for and why we contend for it. First, in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 22, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying 
toward Jerusalem. This is after Jesus has proclaimed that his death is awaiting him at Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem. We looked at that passage earlier in the summer. And it appears that he's sort of meandering. He's going from village to village, all the while moving closer to Jerusalem, moving closer to his death and his burial and resurrection, moving closer to his suffering. But he's taking a slow course, and he's moving through the villages, and he's teaching as he goes, as he journeys toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Because at this point, I think that those following him are beginning to get the feeling that a lot of us get, that there are actually very few faithful Christians around us. And, and he's beginning to, these people, I think, his followers are beginning to think, you know, a lot of people are falling away. Maybe there's not going to be that many people who are saved. And Jesus doesn't actually answer the question. In, in the response he gives, he turns the question. And it's not, will many be saved? He turns the question around and says, will you be saved? Um, and he goes and he says this, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive. It's, it's this simple word. Our English word comes from it. It's agonize. To, to, to desire it so deeply that it haunts us. Um, to an attitude of properly pra- placed priorities, properly placed desire, and properly placed focus. It's an athletic discipline. He's not talking about work. He's talking about attitude, focus, and perspective. We must, we must agonize for this gift. Pursue it with great faith. And so the first thing we are told to contend for is a true faith. Many, he says, will seek to enter through that narrow way, and many will not be able to make it. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will say, I do not know where you come from. You see, at some point the master of the house says, the time's up. Your time for decision has passed. I'm closing the doors. The party has begun. There's a feast going on inside. There's a party going on inside. And you were welcome, but you waited. Maybe you were hedging your bets. Maybe you thought there would be a, a better invitation down the road. When I was a youth pastor, that used to drive me crazy. Because I had parents who would tell me, you need to have fun things for them to do. And I would try to plan fun things, but no one would sign up because somebody else was doing something more fun with their friends. And I realized I can't do fun, so I gave up. I'm, I'm just not fun. I'm, I'm a curmudgeon, and I'm happy being a curmudgeon. Um, and that can be fun, doggone it. Um, so there's this party going on inside, and, and people wait too long. And at some point, the master, who is God in this little parable, he just says, the time's up. Whether that time is, is now in this present life or in the eschaton, I don't know that Jesus is focusing on that. I think the principle is simply that there is a finite amount of time to turn to Jesus Christ. And at some point, the door is closed. And when you knock and you say, hey, let us in. He says, I don't know where you come from. I don't know you. And then you'll begin to say, but we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And Jesus says, verse 27, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. You see, Jesus is telling his hearers that simple proximity, we ate with you. Simple proximity to Jesus kind of stuff does not equal faith in Jesus Christ. Proximity does not equal faith. Uh, We heard you teach. 
Jesus says mere knowledge of what I'm saying, mere mental assent to what I'm saying, does not equal faith. Faith is that deep, deep-seated agony that says, I need Jesus, and I'm going to put my trust in Him. It's more than mental assent. As, as I've heard said a few times around here, we are more than just brains on a stick. There's more to faith than simply knowing the right answers. And he goes on to say, depart from me, you workers of evil. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, weeping, wailing, grief, gnashing, frustration, and anger. Have you ever been so frustrated that you grit your teeth? And you're just tense with anxiety, tense with frustration. Perhaps you made a mistake and you're really mad at yourself. At my current job, where I was working part-time the last couple of years, uh, a few months into my tenure there, I made a mistake that cost the company about $3,000. I was upset with myself. (laughs) I was very frustrated. Now, the good news is there were other people in the company, including the boss, that had made bigger mistakes. And so he looked at me and said, don't ever do it again. (laughs) Don't worry, I won't. But I remember being so frustrated and so angry. I have a good friend who is a, was a reconnaissance Marine. And um, he, he was the craziest person I've ever met. Truly, possibly insane. Um, uh, he, he tells a story of being so frustrated one time um, that I have to tell because it makes me laugh. Even though I would never do it and I wouldn't recommend it. It's funny. His wife actually tells the story of him ironing his clothes. Now, as a Marine, he felt like all of his clothes had to be ironed perfectly. And he was from Texas, so his jeans had to be ironed, creased down the middle. That's a thing in Texas. It hasn't spread here. That's good. Um, um, like His jeans had to be creased. Everything had to be perfect. His collars on his shirt had to be perfect. His shoes had to be polished. And so he's in the laundry room, and he's trying to iron his clothes on this old rickety iron board that won't stand up. And it keeps falling down. And he hears his wife, and his wife hears him, this like creaking sound, right, as the, as the ironing board falls. And finally she hears this come from the laundry room. Do you know who I am? I'm a trained killing machine. You will not beat me. And she hears this crashing noise as he completely, physically tears apart this metal ironing board. This is what I see when I see gnashing of teeth. I see a completely irrational sort of anger that will destroy anything. Like that's the depth of emotion that happens when you find yourself rejected by God. It's this combination of grief because you know you messed up and a combination of anger because there's still a sinful part of us that says, I don't really deserve this. And so we are both sad and angry, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then, insult to injury. You'll have this weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. You see, his audience, most likely here, Jewish people, assumed that if you were in the nation, you were in with God. You had the covenant promises. Everything was going to be fine. And what Jesus is saying is that the covenant has moved. It has changed. It has shifted. It's not the old covenant. It's the new covenant. And I'm the center of it. And if you reject me, you'll be looking on as all of your godly forefathers sit at the feast that you belong at, but we're not welcome. Because you did not accept me. But... There will be people who come from all directions, north, south, east, west, and they will recline at the table of the kingdom of God. That Jesus isn't picky, thankfully, about the people who he'll let in. If you 
pursue Him, are anxious for Him, desire Him and His salvation, and to rest in His peace, you will be welcome at that table no matter what. And he goes on then to say, the last who will be first and some who are first, it's they who will be last. And so in the kingdom of God, there are perhaps many of us who say, well, you know, I do Jesus-y kind of things. I'm okay. Or I know a lot about theology and about scripture, so, so I'm okay. Or, or I was born to a good family and I've never really done anything bad, so, so I'm okay. And Jesus says, be careful. If you look at yourself thinking you're one of the first, because there's a good chance you may be one of the last. Because it really comes down to faith. It really comes down to trusting in his grace. And so we are called to contend for true faith in Christ. Nothing but the gospel. Nothing but his grace. Nothing but salvation alone, through Christ alone, through grace alone, and faith alone. Nothing else. That is our job to contend for. Those are the things we fight over. There are other issues that we may be willing to set aside or agree to disagree, but not this one. This is about Jesus Christ. And it is a message of goodness and hope and peace and feasting. And we are called to contend for it, to fight for it. And when we move over to to Hebrews chapter 12, we see a similar message. Similar. Uh, We are told to contend for the true faith in Jesus But in Hebrews 12, we are told to contend for faithfulness to Jesus. Slightly different. Faithfulness to Jesus. Hebrews 12. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. He's speaking here to a church. He's speaking here to a congregation full of people. And the the, the author here is aware, I think, that there are likely some in the congregation who are there doing Jesus-y kind of stuff. And maybe, just maybe, they've never really put their faith in Jesus Christ. And he's instructing them to make sure that everyone obtains to the grace of God. They, They pursue him and they find him. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. This is an interesting little phrase here, root of bitterness. I read a lot of commentaries and heard a lot of sermons through the years where they talk about bitterness in the church. Don't allow bitterness to creep up that will cause dissension and therefore cause churches to split. But that isn't actually what he's talking about. Uh, The root of bitterness here is a reference to Deuteronomy 29, verses 17 through 19. And I'm going to read it to you. Deuteronomy 29, 17 through 19. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Uh, The the issue here for the author of Hebrews is apostasy. It's apostasy. Don't allow this root of bitterness, this, this poisonous idea, creep in and then lead people astray. And the poisonous idea... Uh, is captured in Deuteronomy, where you have these, these Israelite people who've received the, the covenant promise, and uh, you have someone who says, hey, you know what? I've got the covenant. 
I've got the sacrifices. I'm covered. All, I can do whatever I want. All I have to do is offer the proper sacrifice, and I'm fine. And God tells us through Moses in Deuteronomy, uh, this is the root that bears poisonous and bitter fruit. The idea that you can abuse the grace of God, even in the Old Testament concept of sacrificial system. Here the author of Hebrews is saying exactly the same thing. We are to contend for faithfulness to Jesus. Yes, God's grace is endless and it is boundless. But God's grace should never be used as an excuse for sin. And I think that our author here is saying very clearly that if you are using God's grace as an excuse to fall into more sin, hey, God is gracious, I can be forgiven. I think what he's saying is that you need to be careful for your soul because there's something wrong that you're not fully understanding what grace is supposed to do. Grace is supposed to free us, to bring us the type of joy that actually makes us better. But if we're twisting it and abusing it to do something else, I believe the author of Hebrews has given us a warning to beware for the condition of our souls. And I don't think here that he's talking about merely like the sins you do. Like, I don't think that's actually it. Because in the Old Testament context, the, the, the uh, Jew that we're speaking of is not saying, I want to go do whatever I want to go do. What he's saying is, I will worship God and offer sacrifices, and then I will worship the other gods. And the, the author of Hebrews is concerned because his people are being tempted to return to the, Judy, the, the, the Jewish sacrificial system. And he's saying to them, you cannot... On the one hand, say that you have faith in Jesus Christ, and then on the other hand, go practice another religion. That is apostasy. That is when you choose to walk away from the faith. Now, I don't know what this means necessarily for the individual believer. Can the, the individual believer lose his salvation? I'm inclined to say absolutely not if we're talking about uh, if we're talking about people who are truly in Christ and believe by faith and we believe in God's endless and boundless grace. And yet, I have known people and you have known people who we thought were Christians and yet they walked away. And many of them vocally walked away. And so what do you do with that person who has actually committed apostasy? Who has a, accepted beliefs that are not Christian or sub-Christian? Who has actually said, I don't believe any of this and I'm leaving. What is that person's condition before a holy God? You know, that is above my pay grade. <laughs> this is what I know. Any person who shakes their fist at God and says, I'm done, needs to be called back to repentance. Whether or not, whatever their standing is before God, I don't know. I will let him sort that out. But that person is in peril. And they need to be called back to repentance. To abandon themselves to the grace of God. And so we are told then to contend for true faithfulness. The author of Hebrews goes on. See that that bitter root doesn't spring up, causing many to go astray. Many will be defiled. Uh, see that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. I don't want to spend a lot of time tonight talking about sexual immorality. But I will say this. Sometimes conservative Christians in particular get a bad rap because they say you're so obsessed with sex. But when I look at Scripture, I say, Scripture talks a lot about it. So what do you expect us to do? Scripture talks a lot about it because how we view sexual activity and sexual relationships is directly connected to how we view God. 
how we view a covenant-making God, how we view a Trinitarian God who's three who are one, intimately connected, how we view relationships, how we view promises, how we view intimacy. It's all connected to God because sex is in some way the most, it is the most intimate thing that two human beings can do. And in some very small way, it's the closest we can come to emulating the relationship of the Trinity, a sort of intimacy where no secrets are hidden. This is a physical act that in some way symbolizes something divine. And God cares quite a lot about it. And he cares that we preserve it properly. And so the author of Hebrews says to his audience, uh, see that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Now Esau's sin was not sexual. Esau's unholiness came because he did not regard the gift that he had as something important. Something to be guarded and kept. Do you remember the story of Esau? Esau and his brother Jacob he goes out into the field. Esau's a hunter. He goes out hunting. He's hungry. He comes back. Uh, Jacob, who hangs around the house, he, he's kind of the, the, the mama's boy. He likes to cook, and his mom really likes him. Esau's a man's man kind of guy in, in all those typical stereotypes. And, and Esau comes in, and, and he's hungry, and he says, I, I need some food. Give me some food. And, and, and Jacob says, well, here, you can have it if I can have your birthright. Sure, no problem. And just like that, Esau throws away this gift that he's been given as if it didn't really matter, as if it wasn't worth protecting. And he's willing to just say, sure. And then later, this comes time to receive the blessing of the father. And Jacob, because he's rather sneaky, uh, hoodwinks their blind father. And, and their father, uh, Isaac, gives the blessing to Jacob instead of Esau. And at that point, Esau becomes really, really angry. He wasn't angry so much that he gave up the birthright. He got a meal out of it. So to him, it seemed like a good deal. But he, but he didn't like it that his blessing was taken. Because once the blessing is taken, it's one thing to give up the birthright. Because you'll still inherit something. But you give up the blessing. And you're giving up this idea that God specifically has chosen you. And he gave up something with the blessing that was even more important than the birthright. And it's that that made him angry. And he is in that moment, as Jesus talked about, where he's weeping and gnashing his teeth. And he tries to kill Jacob because of it. But the author tells us, the author of Hebrews tells us that, um, that after Esau gave up his birthright, he desired to inherit the blessing, but he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, and though he sought it with tears. That same principle, this idea that there really is a limited, finite amount of time where people can turn to Christ. At some point, the plan and program of God is in place and it's moving forward. And it's going to be too late. And so we're told to contend for true faith in Jesus Christ. And we're also told to contend for true faithfulness. Uh, but this faithfulness isn't something that we are told to do Simply so, we can earn God's favor. God's favor has already been earned in Christ. But it is about uh, staying away from apostasy. Putting ourselves in situations where we're not likely to fall away. Where we're not likely to just give up. But to stay close and desire a relationship with Jesus. And be where Jesus is. Not so that we can simply learn more stuff. But so that we can allow him through the power of the Holy Spirit to work on us and change us. You know, I've told you before about my friend named Jared who's left his wife and four kids, and I, I worry about my friend. Because my, my friend has said to me, you know, God and I have worked it out. His exact words were, I've talked to him, I've repented, I'm good with God. 
And I want to say to him, yeah, but I'm just not sure God's good with you at the moment. Um, that, that there's something horrible you're doing, and you're using God's grace as a cover. Now, this is my friend, and I believe he's a Christian. But you know, he needs to repent because I'm not sure. And I'm not sure that he can be sure. <laughs> because there's something about our faith that should spur us to righteousness. Uh, not in and of ourselves, but because it's an outflow of what Christ has done in us. And if we've simply been sitting and doing Jesus-y things, and that hasn't really filtered into our lives, and it hasn't really caused us to, to think differently about these things, then something must be wrong. And I'm not saying that if you sin, that's a sign that you're apostate. I'm saying if you sin and you don't care, you need to be concerned. If you sin and you don't care, you need to be concerned. Because something's misfiring in your spiritual life. But why? Why? Now, I know this is heavy. I don't mean to leave us there, and I'm not going to leave us there. Because the author of Hebrews doesn't leave us there. The author of Hebrews paints a picture for us. Tells us why these things are worth fighting for. Why faith is worth fighting for. Why faithfulness is worth fighting for. Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may be may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said i tremble with fear you see the the audience here in in hebrews being tempted to return to to jewish sacrificial system they're being reminded how horrible the law actually was. They're being reminded what it was like when you went to Mount Sinai. And this is actually a summary of the events as they're recorded in the Old Testament. You come to a mountain that is so holy it can't be touched. It's blazing with fire. It is darkness and smoke and gloom. It is like a storm. The sound of trumpets and a voice commanding God's righteousness that is so terrifying that people say we can't hear it anymore. We cannot bear to hear about God's righteousness. And it's mediated through stone hard tablets. And it's cold. And it's impersonal. And for his audience being tempted to become apostates and return to the old way, the, the author of Hebrews is saying you must be insane <laughs> to go back to that. But you have not come to Mount Sinai. You, verse 22, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, a heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You have not come to a mountain that is terrifying. You have been brought to a mountain that is a party. And it is a celebration. And the angels sing and they feast and they gather. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, all those saints of God who are with him, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets, those people that in, in the gospel of Luke uh, are sitting at the table, but the disbelievers, they're, they're left out. Those are the people that we are going to see. All the saints of God who've spoken and done mighty works. We're going to eat with them and feast with them and talk with them. And it's going to be fantastic. But it doesn't just end with the company because the company is pretty good. It doesn't just end there. It says, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You're not being called to a tablet of stone. You're being called to Jesus Christ, a person, flesh and blood, whose blood 
sprinkled on you says something better than the blood of Abel. There's a comparison there. Abel was innocent, but he was murdered, and his blood drenched the fields. Jesus was innocent, but he was murdered, and his blood cleanses you, and it's sprinkled on you. And the murder of that innocent man speaks against the first murder, speaks against the first violence. It undoes that first violence, and it speaks a better word to you and to me. That first violence sets us on a spiral, and we've been living with violence ever since. This last violence is setting it all right. And someday there will be a feast, and we will sit there, and we will be at peace. And so we're told to put our faith in Jesus Christ, to desire Him, because what else is there? And we're told to contend for faithfulness, because faithfulness has its own reward. And faithfulness brings us closer to experiencing what Jesus Christ has for us. And He's the mediator of the new covenant. Verse 25, See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they do not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven? Jesus Christ, calling to us from heaven. And that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. You see, it's easy like Esau, to look to the immediate gratification of the, of the soup and to give up the birthright. It's easy, like the followers of Jesus in His parable who are waiting for a better offer before the feast is closed and then it's too late, the door's closed and they're left out. It's easy to say, well, we'll just hedge our bets. Maybe this is the right answer over here. Maybe this is the right answer over there. Maybe this thing's not that important and it's really easy to walk away from and I'll just come back later because, hey, God is... God is gracious. But the author here of Hebrews tells us that all those things that we're willing to walk away from God for, all of those things are going to be destroyed. None of it will exist when he's done. And the only thing that will be left is the glorious kingdom of God and the feast and the peace and the joy. And so we're being called to contend for the gospel. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That consuming fire, it's not a threat. It's not a worship God or you'll be burned up. It's worship God because everything that's false is going to be burned up. And He'll be all that's left. And this is why we must contend for this, because I look around at the world and I see a lot of sadness. It isn't hard to see. I see families breaking up. I see people being killed. I see, I see pain and I see suffering and I see a lack of hope. And when people have no hope, when people have no hope in the future, they have no power to live in the present. There's a story of Flagstaff, Maine. Flagstaff, Maine was a quaint little town in Maine that found its days numbered when the state decided to put in a, a dam, a hydroelectric dam. And once the, it was decided that this was going to happen, the people kind of gave up in Flagstaff. They stopped caring for their lawns. They stopped painting their houses. They stopped taking care of the town. Even though the dam was years and years from completion, they gave up hope. Because they had no hope for the future. Their town was doomed. It was done. And because there was no hope for the future, they could not live in the present. But our author tells us we have hope for the future. 
And that hope for the future isn't just some nameless, faceless thing, some pie-in-the-sky dream that we just sort of think about but has no impact on our lives because we know that everything that exists that distracts us from Jesus Christ is going to be burned up and remade, remade the new heavens and the new earth. We have hope that we can actually live for today. And we do not have to be a people who live in despair. And so I finish with the last few verses of Josh Garrell's song. Still I get hard-pressed on every side, between the rock and the compromise, like the truth and pack of lies fighting for my soul, and I've got no place left to go, because I got changed by what I've been shown. More glory than the world has known keeps me rambling on. Skipping like a calf loosed from its stall, I'm free to love once and for all, and even when I fall I get back up for the joy that overflows my cup. Heaven filled me with more than enough, broke down my levee and my bluff, let the flood wash me. One day, when the sky rolls back on us, some rejoice and others fuss, cause every knee must bow and tongue confess that the Son of God is forever blessed. His is the kingdom, we're the guests, so put your voice up to the test. Sing, Lord, come soon. Further along, we'll know all about it. Further along, we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brothers. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand this all by and by. And so we contend for faith and we contend for faithfulness because eternity is at stake.